Hello, Totally Sort of listeners. Darren here. This week on the podcast, we do an in-depth review of Jessica Jones Season 2. It's full of spoilers, so you may want to skip it if you still plan on watching it and don't want it spoiled. I talk about a classic board game that's been reissued, Manhattan. We get back to our Tournament of Fools for the second half of the first round. And finally, I complete Chris's challenge to find three comic books that would introduce people to the wonderful world of comics. It's coming up next. Enjoy. Welcome to Totally Sort Of, the podcast. It's sort of like a review show and totally like catching up with your best friend. I'm Darren. And I'm Chris. We're going to let you know what you totally need to check out and what is sort of worth skipping. But before we get started, have you got any anything totally random from this week you want to share with us? Yeah, this is pretty random. Uh, one of the things that I love about where I live in Toronto is just the specifics of my neighborhood. Okay. I live in an area of Toronto called Leslieville. It's essentially downtown Toronto, but we're slightly east of the downtown core. Okay. And it's kind of like this little pocket community. When my wife talks about it with her friends at her uh, work, they're like, what is that crazy little commune you live in called Leslieville all about? But I was uh, feeling the love for the neighborhood this week. And last week on Facebook, I was seeing postings on a Leslieville Facebook page yeah. uh, from a restaurant in our neighborhood where someone had dined and dashed. And it's a relatively new restaurant. And the waitress posted pictures of the people from the store surveillance. And other people sort of started recognizing these two women. And they oh, yeah. so it wasn't just like a homeless or poor person dining in Dash. They were uh, comments like, I recognize those two women. I'm sure that they stole my wallet at this place last week. Hmm. And so I sort of felt bad for them. And we were going out with friends on Friday night. And I just kind of made a point of going to that restaurant and having dinner. And it yeah. just, I don't know, it felt like a, a nice thing to do in the neighborhood to cool. make a point. But it's kind of like what our neighborhood's like. So I'll give a little shout out to the Lan Vietnamese restaurant in Leslieville on Queen Street East in Toronto. We had a, a great meal. They were super friendly, super nice staff, and, you know, kind of felt like we were doing a good thing. Nice. I like that. Good stuff. How about yourself? Anything interesting going on this week? Well, uh, this is going to sound like I'm talking about uh, a show, but I'm not really. Um, I watched the uh, season premiere of Legion this week. But uh, the reason I bring that up is because I've had a couple of conversations with people this week about cable versus streaming, and it's just had me thinking about like the days of watching broadcast TV and being tied to commercials and all that kind of thing. Yeah, does it feel weird now seeing commercials watching live television? Well, it does, but what's weirder, weirder even than that is getting commercials when you're watching a streaming service, because the FX Now app... Uh, that I watched Legion on shows commercials in the regular commercial breaks. And, hmm. okay, that's fine, except they only had one advertiser. Oh, so it's the same commercial at every break? It's it's not even just, like, five commercials for one thing. It's literally the same commercial repeated four to seven times in a row. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and 
And when you're watching a show that's about, you know, questioning reality, questioning your sanity, you watch the same bad commercial six, seven times in a row, and you start to question your own sanity. <laughs> it was it was just a really surreal experience of like, how many times is that now? Wait, is it really starting again? And every time that 15 or 20 second commercial would, would get close to over, it's like, okay, I wonder if it's gonna if it's gonna come back now. And there's a little load screen between each one, and every time you hope the show is gonna come back, no, it's the commercial again. So <laughs> that was that was my sixty minutes of insanity watching Legion this week. Well fitting. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so uh shall we jump into our weekend geek? Absolutely. So, uh, what are we talking about this week? I think that we've finally both seen all of Jessica Jones. Yes, and I, I got the sense from a message you sent me earlier this week that you were less than thoroughly impressed. I am less than thoroughly impressed with season two of Jessica Jones. Yeah. How about yourself? I liked it. I was a little a little disappointed. Maybe not as much as you. I'm just guessing from, from your reaction to it. Uh, overall, I liked it. I I liked a lot of things about it, but it felt kind of incomplete to me as a season. It felt like the story arc with uh, her mother. I think we probably are going to have to accept that there's going to be spoilers. This uh, show came out March 8th. Yeah. uh, So it's been out for a full month now. You should uh, skip this section entirely if you don't want to hear spoilers, but it's been out for a month. Why haven't you seen it yet? Fair enough. So I felt like the story arc that they did in this season was good, and I liked I liked a lot of it, but it didn't feel like they moved the needle far enough along for the course of a season, and I feel like if that story that they did had been sort of two-thirds or even three-quarters of the season and they had done a little bit more of some B story or just something else or more of a tease of next season, I would have been happy with it, but uh, it just felt like not quite enough. I felt like that entire 13 episodes should have been six. Yeah. And that then they should have gone into a completely different storyline. I thought there was way too much Jerry Hogarth, the lawyer story that amounted to nothing essentially at the end of the season i thought there was way too much trish walker story that didn't sufficiently pay off at the end i thought the season lacked any clear villain for the 13 episodes i thought Mm -hmm. it was a good story that could have been told in six episodes and that they then could have got into what the real villain of this season was yeah i mean i think we're on the same page maybe just to differing degrees I feel like it's less of a superhero show than we sometimes want it to be. I think some of the Jerry stuff and the stuff that dragged on between Jessica and her mother, in some ways it kind of dragged, but in some ways I think they did some really good character work with it. So from a plot point of view, yeah, it, it definitely could have done more. But I appreciated what they did in there. I just wanted more stuff to happen, just kind of like you. Yeah, I mean... There were things I liked about the season. I still love Kristen Ritter as Jessica Jones. 
I thought the first three episodes were great. I, I love the wizard inclusion. I like Trisha's pop star past. Beyond episode three, I thought episode five, which is where they do the flashback episode to sort of younger Jessica, I thought it was great. I really enjoyed that episode. So I liked the the Hellcat stuff, the mm-hmm. development of Trisha's character. I just thought it could have been done in way less time. The Stan Lee cameo was pretty funny. I don't know if you caught that or not. Uh, I'm blanking on it right now. I think it's been a few weeks. Remind me. In episode nine, when they go to the bus station to go save Oscar's son, Oh, Vito, yes, yes, yes. The bus that they're in front of has a big bulletin board for yeah. Stan Lee for a, a law firm that uses the the name Forbush. Yeah. Which is from... Forbush Man. Yeah, the uh, <laughs> Alfred E. Newman type character they used when they tried to basically launch a Marvel Mad magazine. So I thought there was some good stuff. Yeah. I just didn't think it was a season worth of stuff. I thought it was six episodes worth. I thought they were missing any real integration with the larger Marvel Cinematic Universe or even with the Netflix Cinematic Universe. There were yeah. no uh, recognition of any of the events of the Defenders. Now, the Defenders Minimal. arguably... Yeah. The Art Defenders arguably didn't really have any impact, and that was part of its problem, but they really acknowledged nothing that took place or any of the people she even interacted with in there. All right, so we, you know, we're more or less on the same page that not enough happened. What do you, I, I really kind of am curious, though, what do you think's going on with Jerry Hogarth? Do you think she's going to end up as a supervillain, or is she just going to be a deus ex machina pulling strings you know, enabling other villains kind of thing. Yeah, I don't know. They gave a hint at the end there that she's now about to engage in something that's going to negatively impact on Jessica without giving any real clue. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, and this was news to me, but you mentioned that um, when we first talked about this season that they'd got women directors to do the whole season. I think you can also see in the the scripting and the plotting that this was really a woman-dominated show in terms of all the characters. There are very few male characters, significant ones, in this season. And I do think as a drama, as just a character piece, it had a lot of interesting themes and about people using each other and about Jessica and her mother seeing the reflection of each other. And, you know, as much as I was frustrated by the lack of progress and action at times, I did enjoy and appreciate the whole season. And I really appreciated some of the some of the thoughtfulness and degrees of coming and going and vacillating on how people felt about each other. I thought that was really good character work. So it was still a good show. And I You know, I was left disappointed, but I really did enjoy it as I was watching it. Yeah, I found, and I think this was reflected in my message to you, that uh, eventually I just got bored. Yeah. I think I should have liked uh, episode 11, where Tennant comes back and revives Kilgrave in the series of flashbacks or hallucinations more, but I think by that point I kind of turned on the season and I sort of saw it as a Hail Mary pass trying to save what was generally floundering throughout the season by that point. Hmm. Fair enough. I don't know. I I liked it because it it actually one beef that I have with with streaming shows that get released like this and kind of encourage you to binge watch them is I feel the value of an individual episode gets somewhat lost and I do think that good shows are made of good episodes and um, that was a fairly self-contained element of the show 
that came and went in a satisfying way. So I kind of liked it. Sadly for me, uh, Jessica Jones season two goes from Jessica Jones season one being my second favorite of the Marvel Cinematic Netflix universe to season two being probably my second least favorite. Hmm. I think it's marginally above Iron Fist. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's definitely above Iron Fist. I don't know. I haven't sat down and and done the... uh the calculations on that one i haven't haven't ranked them up but we should move along absolutely so how about some board gaming you've played a game that i'm a little bit curious about i saw that you've been playing manhattan this week yeah i know you said you've never played manhattan manhattan is an older game mm-hmm. it's a 1994 game in the, on its release in 1994, it won the Spiel Award for Game of the Year. Okay. It's designed by the same person who designed Puerto Rico. Hmm. And uh, given that copies of that original game now sell for well in excess of $200 on Amazon and eBay, it seems like it was ripe for a reissue, which came this year. So it came out uh, early 2018, and I found it on the new release section at Snakes and Lattes. We played it. I quite liked it, given you don't know the game at all. Actually, I did uh, I did look it up when I saw you had it in the show notes, and uh, it looks fun. It looks like a nice little quick abstract kind of game. It looked like there's a lot of player interaction. Yeah, so basically you have a, a board that's a map of Manhattan with the city divided up into... Uh, various blocks. You have cards which let you then play skyscraper pieces into various parts in the various blocks and it's a area control game in which you try to build the most skyscrapers, the tallest skyscrapers and have uh, your skyscrapers spread across the various sectors and across the whole city Mm -hmm. and so whoever has the most combinations of that at the end of the game wins and you have cards which show you where you can play so you have to make some strategic choices about what pieces you're going to have available to you in each round yep i liked it it's uh i would think i would refer to it as a light area control game there's not a ton of depth to it but there is some depth and strategy to what you choose to take with you and how you play your cards in each round it's pretty easy to learn pretty easy to teach it uh, you can jump into it pretty quickly and everybody sort of consistently feels like they're doing things because there's no elimination everybody plays in every round everybody uh, has the the pieces and you can always play somewhere so you're cool. never left out cool i've heard people complaining about the reissue board itself which i'd never seen the original manhattan board but i understand it looked more like manhattan <laughs> and in this they've kind of pumped up the colors a bit and people right. described it as having sort of a tropical feel which I, I guess is so it's sort of those bright colors but didn't really bother me yeah yeah aesthetics are go a long way um I can understand people always beef about reissues if they don't get it quite right. So, cool. I will uh, try and check that one out. All right. Well, that completes our Week in Geek. Now we're going to go back to something we started last week, our Tournament of Fools. The Tournament of Fools. So, when last we worked on the Tournament of Fools, we had finished the first half of the initial bracket. This week, we do the second The first matchup that we have for this week is Cheryl from Archer, or Carol, if you will, against Kelso from That 70s Show. Who is your pick? 
I went with Carol. Absolutely. This was one that, uh, along the same lines as you mentioned earlier when we were talking about Les Nessman last week, that uh, one of the interesting things about these particular characters is that they're clueless, but they have a mean streak, and Carol certainly serves as one of the uh, people <laughs> with a mean streak. Yeah, many, many levels and varieties of crazy bundled into that package. I, I especially love her stint as uh, Charlene in the, in the, uh, <laughs> the Archer Vice. Yeah. Yeah. That was a great twist for her. I'm really looking forward to this season of Archer. Have you seen what they're doing with Danger Island? No, I haven't. Um, this is a quick aside, but uh, this season they're going to be doing almost a riff on Tales of the Gold Monkey. So Archer is going to be a seaplane captain. It's all going to be set on a tropical island. And the characters are largely the characters as they are, but Pam is like an eight-foot giant. <laughs> <laughs> of course she is. <laughs> Anyways, and uh, Ray apparently is just voicing uh, a parrot. <laughs> yeah, anyways, we should say something about Kelso. Kelso is a fun character. Um, that pick for Kelso from that 70s show, I think we kind of waffled on, should it be Kelso or... Um, Fez? Kelso definitely had some good charisma. He's a, a very, very likable sitcom character. But yeah, I just love Archer so much that I had to, had to go for Cheryl myself. He was missing the edge. Maybe... All right, the next bracket has Kelly, the sister from Married with Children, against Pierce from Community. This is our second character from Community. Yeah, not too many shows got two characters. Who'd you go with? I went with Pierce. I understood from reading some of the stuff that Chevy Chase was not the most pleasant person to deal with throughout that story, and it yeah. kind of colored my impression of him. Same here. But his character, I don't just consistently made me laugh like that they could just continue to draw out this insanity that was his character i mean right up to his death and the whole craziness surrounding his will and stuff uh, i just I'm, i've always liked chevy chase too it was kind of sad for me to hear that he was such a pain in the ass uh, throughout the course of that show but he did it for me while he was there until i found out that stuff I struggled with that one a little bit because um, ultimately he did such a good job of Pierce being an annoying character that I, I really hated that character. I mean, he made <laughs> me laugh and it was entertaining, but he drove me nuts. Um, so, yeah, I kind of wanted a little variety and I just couldn't couldn't cast my vote for Pierce. I really have nothing great to say about Kelly, but... <laughs> You remember the episodes where Troy was doing the Twitter that was based on, like, stuff my dad says? And I think it was called Cra Stuff Crazy White Guy Says. <laughs> and it was Pierce. Yes. <laughs> that was good. I, I think one of my favorite episodes or number of episodes with, uh, with Pierce was when they started playing Dungeons & Dragons. And... Uh, <laughs> That was it was funny for lots of reasons, but Pierce just being the total knob of the group uh, really resonated with me with some experiences that I've had with people in real life. So that was that was a highlight or a low light for me. Okay, so yeah, we're gonna have to agree to disagree on that one. Next up, we have Bill from King of the Hill. Poor old Bill uh, against Bull from Night Court. How did you swing on this one? Well, this was a toughie. You know, when when we drew our names i was really hoping that bill would get matched uh with teddy from bob's burgers because essentially or in large parts they are the same character <laughs> they are yeah. the schlub in the in the white tank top but uh bull just he was uh kind of cartoony compared to a lot of characters on this list 
but a very lovable character. And yeah, I don't think we'd ever seen a character quite like Bull uh, and his physical presence, those kind of soft puppy expressions and moments that that he'd come up with it was just a great uh, great contrast and some good physical comedy and good writing good character i also went with bull uh largely i loved bill's character on king of the hill but as i talked about some earlier characters sometimes it was just so painful to watch what he did and yeah. kind of his suffering that <laughs> kind of oh that hurts just to see you doing that or that happening to you yeah and bull was just uh, as you said a unique character and the way sometimes he was the total straight man to whatever else was going on yeah yeah and sometimes he was the one off the deep end yeah i don't know his character worked for me yeah good stuff good memories um okay our next matchup a little little tougher a little bit more of a reach back on both of these shows for me we've got harry from third rock from the sun against lowell from wings how'd you go with this one i went with lowell from wings lowell had this again idea that uh, although 90 percent of the time he just seemed to be cluelessly moving through things Mm -hmm. there was that period of time where he was sort of the the stable center and would just come out with something that you know it was yeah he's right or he's the one who seems to know what's going on or there's something there was always something quietly bubbling beneath the surface of him that you never really knew if he was as sort of dumb as his character was portrayed I don't know did you find the same thing with him yeah um I did appreciate that I also I think you know he kind of had that effect that I think a lot of these characters had which is this is really the first time any of us have seen a really talented actor so I think Mm, we're probably we're probably judging you know the actor as much as anything else and it's I I don't know with Thomas Hayden Church if he had a a stand-up background or what his background was but it was great casting and I mean I think if we knew the if we knew the actor from something else it might not have had the same impact as a way to introduce us to him as an actor what a great role what a great character yeah it is uh, interesting to think how many of these characters were made by their writing and how many of them were made by the acting Mm -hmm. yeah I think uh, yeah sometimes it can go either way I think sometimes uh, if the actor is really good and has has the right kind of charisma that uh, the writers will just jump on that and and run with it I know that definitely happens with you know side characters who become bigger characters and some of these are in that category two for two on Lowell oh wait no (laughs) you almost talked me into it but I had initially voted for Harry (laughs) (laughs) and why Harry um just uh, actually in a very similar um very similar it was about the actor it was about French Stewart and I don't think I'd really seen him in anything and you know i this was a show, uh, Third Rock. I didn't really like Third Rock for a long time. And I still, it's not like a favorite show. But a couple of the performances and, and him being one won me over to enjoying seeing it now and then. And uh, he was a character that was just a weirdo in a show about weirdos. But he still, he took it to another level. And, and the commitment to that character and the and the scrunched up face and the weird voices and it was just uh, he was always something to watch. Sometimes his sort of bitterness that would come out uh, would also, and and his spitefulness mm-hmm. would uh, that that would do it for me as well, though. Yeah, 
Next up, we have a triumvirate of Larry, Daryl, and Daryl from Newhart against Cliff Clavin from Cheers. Hmm. So I had to go with Cliff Clavin on this one. As much as Larry and Daryl and Daryl were a fun memory, when I actually tried to recall what was funny about them, I didn't come up with a whole lot other than they were funny at the time. But I I think they were more like a gimmick character. I had the same thing. Every time they were introduced, I thought it was hilarious. The idea, like, hi, I'm Larry, this is my brother Daryl, and this is my other brother Daryl. Like, that was funny every time, but I really couldn't come up with any moments beyond that that really captivated my recollection and memory. As opposed to Cliff, who just has so many great moments. And um, just, he he is, uh, he's going to be a strong contender for a, you know, top tier in this, in this challenge. Because I think he has that, could be a little petty, could have, be a little spiteful at times. But he was an outcast. He was completely clueless at times. So, yeah, he's got a lot of those, ticks a lot of the boxes that we're looking for here. He certainly does. Favorite Cliff moment? There are a lot of moments, but one of my favorite quotes from Cliff Clavin, which I think are probably the highlight moments, and this is a tiny one, so I'll do it, is I've never forgotten uh, the one time he talked about a Freudian slip. (laughs) And he says, a Freudian slip is when you say one thing and mean a mother. (laughs) That's good. I like that. Okay, next up we have Bill's spiritual brother, Teddy, from Bob's Burgers. Going up against Kramer from Seinfeld. Yeah, Kramer had to uh, take this one for me. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, Teddy could have could have been a contender against someone else, but Kramer is uh, another tour de force in this uh, in this challenge. It's all about how the brackets get seeded. Yeah. It's interesting. Do you, do you still watch Seinfeld? Yeah, every once in a while. You know, it was kind of interesting to see his character evolve. He They kind of settled on who he was pretty quickly, but the earlier episodes, first season, I guess, um, he was really just more of a kind of a skeezy jerk. Yep. I mean, he remained a skeezy jerk, but with more fleshed out characteristics. But yeah, it, Kramer was just always fun and... Um, Great, great, great performance. How do you feel about Teddy beyond uh, him being Bill's spiritual partner? He's the one from Bob's Burgers that just, he's always unexpected. He's kind of like Bill, but maybe a little less depressing in that, um, you know, he's a very sad character, but he has a lot of, he surprises you on that show a lot. Like they kind of take him and reveal a lot of different little things here and there, like his talents or his interests. And I don't know, he was just always a lot more fun than I would have expected. All right, next we have Colonel Clink from Hogan's Heroes against Moss from the IT crowd. So this is a good matchup because Hogan's Heroes has got to be, along with maybe Gilligan's Island, the oldest show on this list. And IT crowd being not a long-running show, but one of my all-time faves. So um, Colonel Clink didn't stand a chance, I have to say. Moss is uh, one of my all-time favorite characters. He's the kind of character that I just have to think about him, and I get a smile on my face. I can hear him saying something stupid. I can imagine his look, and um, he's just funny even just to think about. Yeah, this was easier for me in the opposite way because I've actually never seen the IT crowd. No. Yep. Never? Never seen it. Okay, I think we're going to have to have a new segment called uh, Intervention or <laughs> or What the Hell. Okay. Anyways, I, that's a sidebar, but uh, we'll have to rectify that at some point. 
All right. But uh, beyond that, um, in terms of its enduring legacy, Colonel Clink's one line, really, I mean, there are lots of funny moments with him, but that one uh, famous line, I see nothing, I hear nothing, I know nothing. I mean, I probably use that <laughs> once a month as a just a, a quote to something. I don't know. What, I always find wherever it will fit in, I will use it. Uh it's good to know that our brain cells have been put to such good use, isn't it? <laughs> okay. Well, we're getting close to the end here. Uh, our final matchup for the first round sees Jerry from Rick and Morty against Klinger from MASH. Who did you choose? I went with Klinger. This was tough for me, but MASH itself, again, just has again as being a much older show against a much more recent show just mm-hmm. Klinger's performance has sort of an enduring nostalgia for me that I uh, I think I picked it more based on the show than on the uh, and the nostalgia effect I mean I loved Klinger's character I thought he was great and this whole idea of this person trying to get out of military duty by proving he was insane by constantly wearing women's clothing was uh, i don't know i mean i think it would be seen less as an acceptable gag nowadays but for the time that it was done i i thought he was hilarious i thought that the idea of it was hilarious and uh so i went with clinger yeah i uh i ended up going with clinger too just because uh you talked about a character being just uncomfortably painful and and that's kind of where where jerry is for me he's uh yep He's a funny foil to the other characters on that show, but in and of it himself, he's a, he's a loser, but he's not a particularly lovable loser. As opposed to Klinger, like you said, um, great performance. And the one of the things I love about MASH, um, I came to MASH pretty late in uh, in my life. Like I didn't watch it in my as a kid or as a teen. I came around to it probably in my 20s. And at first it seemed kind of dated and kind of stereotypical, but when you look at it, they actually did some pretty pretty advanced stuff for their time. And, uh, you know, as much as Klinger in some ways seems kind of like some bad stereotypes of, of, of behavior, you know, he actually talked about being Lebanese and, you know, how many Lebanese characters were there on, on network TV at the time. And they didn't, you know, they didn't gloss over details like that, that just, you know, there was more depth there than just the, the you know, wearing a dress to get out of the service. Yep. So, good pick. Okay, so next week on Tournament of Fools, we'll be recapping this first round, seeing how similar and different our picks were, and then taking those picks on to the next level. That being completed, it's now time for the take-home top three. Okay, so last week I gave you the assignment of identifying three comic books or graphic novels or series, whatever you want to call them, that you would use to introduce someone to the wonder that is comics as a storytelling medium, or as you so succinctly put it, the gateway comics. Yes, this was my task, which you had intended to be a more specific and less ambiguous task. Uh But of course, once I started looking at it, I realized that there was still remained some ambiguity okay in that i approached it however in a very specific way but the ambiguity i see is that uh one are you just trying to convince somebody that comic books as a medium are a legitimate art form okay or two are you trying to indoctrinate somebody into the acceptance that <laughs> stories about people in tights punching each other are a legitimate art form oh, okay 
So so I went with I went with the latter, the idea that the point was to eventually get uh, this person to accept mainstream <laughs> comic books as a legitimate art form. Okay. Notwithstanding that, number one, uh, which would remain the same for either pathway, is uh, Art Spiegelman's Mouse. Yeah, good pick. And uh, I will always give that to somebody as the first one in terms of trying to convince people that comic books are a legitimate art form and uh, are legitimately ought to be recognized as literature. So we should give a little quick recap of what exactly Mouse is for people who might not know. Certainly. So uh, Mouse is a graphic novel by the uh, American cartoonist Art Spiegelman. It ran from 1980 to 1991. I think most people probably read it in its uh, bound form in which it's two volumes. It depicts uh, Spiegelman interviewing his father about his experience as a Polish Jew during the Holocaust and eventually as a Holocaust survivor. It uses the back and forth technique of some of the portions of the book are him actually interviewing and talking to his father along with then actually illustrating the stories that his father is telling him the art form or the drawn form used in the book represents all of the characters in the book as various animals Uh, the jews are all represented as mice the germans as cats the polish people throughout are recognized as pigs the americans are dogs and so you have this story that is obviously a very real very serious story of this guy's relationship with his father his father's background through this uh, horrific experience all illustrated through animals and their interactions yeah it's a great series and i love that you called out the um the kind of framing narrative of him interviewing his father because i think that adds a lot to it you know i think it really helps show the impact of living through these events and how obviously everybody's different but uh you know his father's reluctance and real resistance to to talking about it just gives it another layer and and helps you helps draw you into the story yeah i think it's very interesting that this book won a pulitzer prize for fiction in the uh, special award in letters category and it was the first comic book to ever do so. And they then changed the rules for that category so that no comic could ever win it again. Because people at the time were, in essence, somewhat outraged that a comic book had won this award. Because it really came out at a time when comic books were not recognized as a legitimate form of literature and art. And it was one of the books that, by winning this award and by being what it was, helped to change that perspective. Yeah. Cool. Good little uh, nugget of history there for us, too. I'm going to give you a side note to Art Spiegelman as well. Okay. Beyond the uh, Mouse series and all the things that went along with it, do you know what uh, Art Spiegelman went on to make money with afterwards? I have a feeling I'm going to recognize this, but I, when you tell me what it, no, I can't remember. So the book at the time obviously sold really well and made money, but he made most of his money. Do you remember the Garbage Pail Kids? Yeah. He illustrated almost all of the Garbage Pail Kids. Really? Yeah. That that's a great. I had no idea. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna be googling that as soon as we're done with this show. So they had did a Art Spiegelman art retrospective at the Art Gallery of Ontario a couple of years ago, and I went, and I had no idea either. And in addition to having a giant wall with all of the original sketch pages from Mouse on it, yeah. which I spent ages and ages going through, they also had a whole room 
basically wallpapered with his garbage pail kids illustrations. Wow, that's awesome. There's there's a an awesomely horrible product of its time that that really was so non PC and offensive in so many delightful ways. There's something for people to dig up uh, on the interwebs if they want to. All right, I'm going to move on to number two. Okay, what's your number two? Hit me. So number two is a fairly out there pick. Uh, my pick for number two is Pretty Deadly. Hmm. Okay. So this is a comic book and I would say volume one of Pretty Deadly which contains the first story arc. It's done by Kelly Sue DeConnick and illustrated by Spanish artist Emma Rios. I love this book and I think it has some very specific reasons why I would give it to somebody to try and introduce them to comics as literature and art. I think it's a really good introduction to complex storytelling in comic books Mm. in which both the written word and the art have to really be paired up and viewed together to understand what's going on. If you don't do that, you will be lost in this book. Me being an experienced comic reader, when I finished it, I think I almost immediately went back to the beginning Mm -hmm. and reread it because I knew that I was not uh, really getting everything Mm -hmm. in uh, moving through it the first time. So I think it's a really good introduction to that idea. I also think it's a really good introduction in comics to different voices Mm. because I sometimes refer to it as a unicorn in the comic book world because it has both a female writer and female artist. Sure, that is rare. I think that both of them do an incredible job with this book, but it is a very different voice in both its writing tone and its artistic tone from a lot of other mainstream things that you will see in what is and still remains largely a male-dominated industry. That's great. That's a nice out-there pick for number two. I like it. So now number three, at this point, given the task I'm on, I wanted to get into a more traditional comic book. But uh, as I picture, we're still talking about the initiate and the slow indoctrination. So you've given them the first taste, but you're like, come on, try the capes. So my pick for number three is the uh, 1982 X-Men graphic novel, God Loves, Man Kills. Yeah, okay. So this was a book uh, written by Chris Claremont, illustrated by Brent Anderson. It The storyline inside of it forms one of the basis that they used for the second X-Men movie, which was probably the best one so far. But it's also fairly unique as a comic in and of itself in that it was it's a true graphic novel it's not just a collection of various bound comics it's a separate freestanding story that was just written as this graphic novel yeah it also is non-traditional in its shape Mm -hmm. Uh, most comic books get printed in the sort of eight and a half by eleven format and then when they do graphic novels they're really just collections of them they also sit in that eight and a half by 11 format this one is unique i think it's a 11 by 14 format so it's bigger it just has this different feel from it in terms of the internal story i think it's one of the best examples of what they've always done with the x-men that the x-men have always sort of been allegory 
for uh, mutants as racism, homophobia, anti-Semitism. They've always used uh, mutants, at least in the best of the stories, as uh, allegory for telling those stories of the outsider and their struggle to survive sort of in this mainstream world that can't understand or accept them. God Loves, Man Kills is just such a good version of that story. So for people who don't know this book, the uh, storyline is that there's this televangelist who's basically preaching hate against mutants and they get caught the x-men get caught up in this because he kidnaps charles xavier their leader and plans this giant rally where he's going to use xavier's telepathic power to kill all of the mutants and it is a slow burn into that end story that is just this ongoing discussion of being a mutant and what that means to the people who are mutants and it's it's not even thinly veiled ideas of racism and those other issues it's sort of right in the front of this story Mm -hmm. yeah it really uh that's a great great pick and and one of my all-time favorites too i i wouldn't have thought of that one but it's it's a great pick both for introducing someone to comics but also it's it stands as a great canon building piece of x-men lore i think there are a lot of moments and a lot of themes and scenes that came out of that one single story that became kind of legendary and iconic within the x-men i think it's influenced the movies a lot the first couple of movies for sure and a lot of the comics that have come since but i'd be interested to see how successful you'd be at converting people with that but uh, it's a fantastic pick as as a standalone comic for sure so it's very funny in having picked this book i went to go see sort of some reviews to see how it was generally received because i mean obviously it uh, has been very important as you said and it's been the stories flowing out of it it was used for the second x-men movie so i found this 2013 review Mm -hmm. so in the 2013 review somebody wrote this it's a waste of time talking about how someone like striker could gain the kind of prominence that he does in this book mostly because he couldn't not in the 80s not now not ever or that any large group of people could consider him in the least bit the review in 2013 is like, this should just never happen. Wow. So then I found an article, which I'll post in the show notes, and it's a re-interview of Chris Claremont and Brent Anderson recently. And the byline is, Chris Claremont and Brent Anderson talked to Vox about their story, its relevance, the current state of the X-Men, and Mike Pence's uncanny resemblance to their villain. <laughs> And the idea of somebody in 2013 saying nobody could ever rally around a person who had these kind of radical and crazy ideals and then now seeing that review in a post-Trump era that that somehow invalidated the story because it could simply never happen. And I I just found the juxtaposition of these two articles just to be hilarious. Nice. Cool. Well, we'll have to check out those in the show notes. Uh, thanks for thanks for sharing those. So I like those picks. I like them very much. I'm actually probably going to pick up God Loves, Man Kills off my bookshelf, which is about five feet behind me after we're done here because I haven't read that for a while. Yeah. So uh, what kind of assignment have you got for me for next week? 
I thought I would consider continuing on the same theme. So mm-hmm. one, I uh, decided to keep on the same theme. And two, I uh, had a couple of people who listened to the podcast say that we don't do enough board game stuff. Okay. So I'm going to go with the same question, but with board games. Also, I'm going to give you something easy. So three board games you would use to introduce people generally unfamiliar with modern board games to modern board gaming. Excellent. This is something I could probably do on the spot, but I will give it some thought and try and whittle it down to my absolute favorite three or best three. I like it. And I think it fits your specificity uh, (laughs) concern about how these topics were going. Yeah, well, we we can make any of these projects hard for ourselves. That's, That's just who we are. Well, I think that's about all we have time for this week. Catch us every Wednesday at www.totallysortof.com in the Podbean app, or you can find us on iTunes in the Google Play Store and hopefully soon on Spotify. We'd love to hear from you, so uh, please do leave us a comment or uh, tweet us or find us on Instagram at totallysortof. Or send us an email, hello at totallysortof.com. Even better, you can comment right on the episode pages, or uh, we'd love it if you would leave a review on the iTunes or Google Store. Our intro song is Punk and is used by kind permission from the artist Kabana Black. You can check the show notes for links to him and to many of the things that we've talked about in this week's episode. Until next time, I'm Darren Hogan. And I'm Chris McInnes. And you've been listening to the Totally Sort of Podcast. Talk to you later, buddy. You bet, pal.